Good morning. It is good to be here together. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And I start with an apology, as um, it's my normal process to, like I had plenty of notice about this message, and for the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about this passage, and while I'm driving my skid steer and feeding my cattle and running about and doing this and that, the message takes form and it all nicely develops. And my process is very typically to wait until the Friday or the Saturday to write it down and to wait until the very end to do a PowerPoint presentation, like to add the verses and make it so that it has all the tech that it's supposed to have. And I discovered this week that live streaming means that the PowerPoint has to have a particular format that I don't have, that Josh has, so... I didn't get it to him anywhere close to on time. In fact, I didn't get it to him at all. Um, so we're back to old-fashioned, just preach the word without PowerPoint. I don't know about you, but I'm actually more comfortable with that. Um, but I'll try to give you time to find your place in the scriptures as we go from passage to passage. Let me start by reading Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Stop judging me. In our culture, and particularly the younger you are, so if it was a bunch of 60-year-olds like me gathering together, those words don't have quite the same power as if you're a bunch of 20- or 30-year-olds gathered together. Um, but if somebody voices those words, stop judging me, it it has the effect of instantaneously shutting the conversation off. Because our culture and our society agree that the one thing that is not okay is to be intolerant and to be judgmental of other people. So we might think that these words of Jesus are almost unnecessary today because we all get this. Judge not. Who wants to be a judgmental person? I'm pretty sure that if I asked for a show of hands, not one of you would put your hand up. Oh, yeah, I'd like to be a judgmental person. Um, so then what is it that Jesus is actually getting at? Another, one, another way that that shows up, the odd time you get in on a discussion or a conversation um, where somebody is actually trying to raise an issue that they think needs to be addressed in somebody else's life, and they might say something like, no judgment, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, you know. 
um, which sort of means I don't actually know what it means. Um, Marlene is smiling at me here. I'm very tempted to say, Marlene, tell me what that means. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but again, if, if you're saying and you're judging, that's not okay. Somehow, if you're saying and you're not judging, maybe you'll be all right. Um, for anyone under 40, at least, these words express a fundamental right to make choices without anybody else negatively interfering with your choices. When I was in Bible college, which now is in like, uh, well, I graduated in 79, so you can do the math, that's over 40 years ago. Um, this was a controversial passage. And the reason that it was controversial is because already when I was in Bible college, there was a, a groundswell, a group, a, a, a significant portion of young people who were feeling this, that this business of judging people was not okay. Um, my first message went too long, and I didn't have this in it, so I'm going to have to act something else in order to tell you this. But I remember in Bible college, this is just a little story, um, that there were churches in the United States who wouldn't have anything to do with somebody else who wore bell-bottoms. Um, but not only that, then if you sat with somebody who wore bell-bottoms, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. So you had secondary separation as well as primary separation. So there was a culture in church of legalism, and by the way, legalism is very alive and very healthy and still very true in many churches and in many of our lives. So I'm not pointing fingers back there and saying, whoa, they sure are bad and we're good. Um, but that desire to have a community experience that isn't full of judgment is an appropriate desire, and it's a good thing. Um, so is Jesus siding with the stop judging me crowd? Or is he siding with the you can't do that crowd? Or you must do crowd? Hopefully by the end of this message you will see what Jesus means and it will have become clear. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 and 2 are actually heavy verses. I want to start there because obviously we have to take all of the Bible seriously. So to take any verses lightly is not a good, is not a good thing. But particularly, verses like these two need to be heard with the weight that Jesus gives them. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, there are some Bible scholars who take that to be a strictly human-to-human -human thing. So don't judge other people, because if you judge other people, they're going to turn around and judge you. And if you are a critical person and you go around being critical of everybody, then you're going to experience that same criticism coming at you from the people in your community. And they take the verse to mean that... Don't judge in order that you don't live a life where other people are judging you. Uh, that's highly, highly unlikely. I do not believe for a moment that that interpretation is, is adequate to the text. And if, if you like, go back to chapter 6, verses 14 
to 15 of the same Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. There, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. So in that passage, Jesus makes it really clear that this is not about human to human. It's you as a human to another human experiencing from God what you give to that other human. So if in our community you are an unforgiving person, Jesus is saying, then your Father, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. These are hugely heavy words. And it's the same thing with judging. This thing that's, that we are dealing with this morning is not a insignificant thing that we can just go, well, I'm not sure what that means, so I guess we'll just go on to something else. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you are forgiving, you will be forgiven. If you are condemning, you will be condemned. That is what the text is saying. So, these two passages are, in fact, two sides to one coin. If we do whatever it is that Jesus is telling us not to do, we stand, we are headed for the wrath of God. Don't take it lightly. So then what doesn't, or what does Jesus mean when he says this? How can we make sure that we are not subject to the judgment that this passage promises us? I want to begin, before I get to what it does mean, by talking about what it doesn't mean. Um, a little bit backwards, maybe, but I think it'll help make it clearer as we go along. Jesus is not prohibiting discernment or discrimination, meaning discriminating between right and wrong. Jesus is not suggesting that in our life as a community together, we should be completely free of any attempt to evaluate somebody else's behavior or to ask the question whether that's right or to push somebody about something that is wrong. Um, Jesus is not prohibiting discernment. Well, how do I know that? Well, I'll start with something that I think is a little bit humorous, although not very. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I'm not going to say hardly anything about this last verse. It is part of what Josh asked me to speak on. Um, other than to say... This, for most of my life as a student of the scriptures, this verse has left me going, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Well, to start with, in our culture, when you think dogs, maybe it's a chihuahua or, or a lab or a poodle and and. There are families where poodles are called your children and 
that's my grandson, and you know, it's it's all so that we we think of dogs in very dear terms in the culture that Jesus is speaking to. They're despised. Okay, so don't throw up things that are holy to dogs. Is to say, don't give to the despised creatures that which is holy. And pigs, of course, if you're in a Jewish culture, pigs are despicable. So, to start off with, Jesus is is addressing or comparing people to dogs and pigs in a way that isn't very um, complimentary. Um, so that's that's a starting point. I remember only once in my life thinking that I might understand this passage, and I can't remember anything about the context other than that a light went on, and I went, oh, maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. And it was in the context where... Um, I was connecting with somebody who absolutely scorned my Jesus. And, and what I would say didn't get anywhere. Like, they weren't listening at all. And, and they were looking very quickly for a way to twist it and mock it. And, and in that moment, I thought, oh, okay, maybe I have finally come across a swine that I shouldn't be trying to give pearls to. Um, the other verse that sort of fits in this category for me is when Jesus says we need to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That, that there, is a, there is a shrewdness that is appropriate as Christians and that it isn't that we are always soft and cuddly and, and um, that we are never sharp. So anyways, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. For this morning, or for the rest of this message, there's just one very obvious point that I want you to notice, and that is that if you can't discern who a pig is, then you can't make sure you don't throw pearls to it. And if you can't discern who a dog is, you can't make sure that you don't give a dog what is holy. So even in this very near context, Jesus is already making it really clear that the Christian life is not a life free of discernment. It's not a life where you just think the best of everybody and that you are never critical or discerning or discriminating in the way you relate to other people. So that's point number, or the first uh, support for the idea that discernment is important. Then if you move forward, again in the Sermon on the Mount, now three paragraphs Four, three paragraphs later, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's talking about leaders here, by the way. So beware of leaders who are ravenous wolves, though they are covered in sheep's clothing. Again, how will you know who the wolves are? If it's your understanding that it's never okay to be discerning, that you should never make any judgments. Judgment is a requirement. So when Jesus says, judge not, he obviously doesn't mean don't understand who the pigs and dogs are. And he obviously doesn't mean follow any leader that comes down the road with confidence that they're going to be good because some of them are ravenous wolves who are clothed in sheep's clothing. So they look like sheep on the outside, but you have to be discerning 
to make sure that they are not wolves on the inside. Then if you go further, Jesus promises that his spirit will give his word to his apostles. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. It's a bit long, but you won't follow well what's going on here if I don't read all five verses, so I will. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. It is actually reported, says Paul to the Corinthians, that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now listen to these words, Paul. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, for the judgment that you use, the judgment that you pronounce will be pronounced against you. Paul says, I am present I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment. And not only does he unabashedly, unashamedly say, I am pronouncing judgment, but he calls the whole Corinthian community to join him in that pronouncement and to remove that man from the community for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the last day. There is a kind of discerning, a kind of judging, a kind of leadership, a kind of purity in church community that requires us to call out sin and to name it and to refuse to let it thrive in our midst. Now, the cool thing about this passage, and it'll give you a hint as to what Jesus is meaning as well, is that Paul is actually not condemning this person. He's not saying, and let him go to hell. He's not saying, and may the wrath of God fall on him. He's not saying, we want to despise this person. We want to reject him. What he is saying is, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul views this Corinthian man's behavior within the body as something that is putting that man in danger of hell. And the way to save him from hell is to make it clear to him that he can't continue on that road. He can't be part of this community and continue in that direction. 
with the hope that with the destruction of his flesh, he will return and his spirit will be saved in the day that the Lord returns. So Paul is not actually condemning. He is saving or trying to save the sinning man. And then another one that I find particularly delightful in thinking about discernment is Galatians chapter 6, a softer verse than the one we just read. Brothers, chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In this passage, Paul is saying that if you see somebody who's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual need to call him out and set him free. Now, the cool thing is that you both need to discern when the other is caught in a transgression, and you need to discern your own heart. You need to ask yourself the question in that moment, as my walk with Jesus now fresh and tight? Am I soft in heart and warm? Will I be able to love this person? Will I be able to speak to him with grace and tenderness? Will I be able to re represent Christ? And if you find coldness in your heart, or if you find antagonism in your heart, or if you find malice in your heart, then you stop short and you say, that work is for someone else. Because I'm not in the right place to do this right now. But it's still a work that's required, both in that we have the discernment, the judging ability to say, you are caught, and we have the ability to say, and I am not walking close enough to the Lord to help you. So there's discernment in all four of these different places, the requirement to call out sin. It is not, in fact, an overstatement to say that life in the body of Christ is full of discernment and accountability to God and to one another. The current idea that our culture trumpets and that our churches sometimes embrace to some degree, that what I do is my business and what you do is your business, that the way you follow Jesus is up to you and the way I follow Jesus is up to me and that there's no crossover, that none of us can tell the other what it is that God requires. That whole, whatever that is, aura that is part of our culture needs to be rejected. It is not an overstatement to say that life in the body of Christ is full of discernment and accountability. To one another. Jesus is not saying that each of us can do what is right in our own eyes. Many who would shout, stop judging me, should be shouting, what must I do? What do I need to change? Thank you for pointing this out to me. How can I grow? Okay, so Jesus doesn't mean that the Christian life is a life where nobody calls out sin and where the church just lets anything go, and that judging is not in, in antagonism towards confrontation, then what is 
this judging that Jesus is talking about. Because as I said at the beginning, we can't afford to not understand this. He makes it really clear that this is right at the core of what it means to be saved. Obedience, so some hints. And these come from the next three verses, so I'll read three to five. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, says Jesus? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The very last little bit of verse 5 is the first hint at what Jesus means. Obedience to not judging. So while you are being obedient to judge not, you will be removing specks from other people's eyes. It's quite a surprise, really. Obedience involves removing specks from the eyes of brothers and sisters. If you, if you, it, it's, it comes like, at least as I read this, and I think as anybody who reads this at least for the first time would expect, judge not lest you be judged. And the measure that you use is going to be used against you. Why do you try to take a speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? The next thing you would expect would be, get the log out of your own eye for crying out loud and leave your brother alone. Isn't that, at least that's how I feel. That's where my emotions go as I read this passage. I expect Jesus to say, get the log out of your own eye and leave your brother alone for crying out loud. It's just a speck. That's not what it says. Get the log out of your own eye so you can help your brother get the speck out of his. And when we think about that, it's really quite beautiful. How many of you like having a speck in your eye? Anybody find that to be a pleasant experience? You know, that thing's just in there, your eyes are watering. How many of you have had something like, I, usually Lynn does this for me. So I got the speck in my eye. She can see better with her glasses off than with her glasses on when it comes right close. So she has really good eyesight when it's right in my face. Um, she would never ask me to do that because if she gets right in my face, she has four eyes. I, I get all blurry if anything's closer than six inches. In fact, well, never mind. We don't, we're supposed to be disciplined about time here, so keep all that stuff out of it. Um, anyways, when, when my eyes are watering and it's hurting and I look in the mirror and I can't see that thing and I know there's something in there, but I can't get it, I go to Lynn and she'll lift up on one eyelid and maybe pull down on the other. Oh, yeah, there it is. Out it comes, and now I can see clearly again, and it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's a relational wonder. Um, thank the Lord that she doesn't say, oh, it's just a speck. Never mind. All right? So that's the first thing, is that Jesus gives us a hint when he says, take the log out, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So judge not does not mean leave specks alone. Judge not does not mean leave specks alone. Then the second hint is that those who are judgmental are practicing hypocrisy. Jesus says in verse 5, You hypocrite! 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. You hypocrite! You who say you are one thing and do another. You who think yourself holy. Holy enough that you have no specks or logs. Holy enough to cast him aside because he has specks. You hypocrite. Do you not see that you and he are made of the same? And your eyes, logs or specks, are not clear. Um, All of us, according to Jesus, live on the same ground. Maybe we have a log, maybe we have a speck, maybe we have a brick. I don't know what we have in our eyes. Jesus is obviously, I mean, who has a log in their eye? He's purposely playing it up. Um, But that's the second hint, that those who are judgmental are practicing hypocrisy. And the third one is that the judgers are people who see themselves to be without sin, which I already alluded to. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So judges are people who think themselves to be very righteous when they are, in fact, not righteous at all. Who think themselves to be lofty when they are, in fact, lowly. Who think of themselves to be whole when they are, in fact, broken. And this business of removing specks is for people who are broken and know it. And people who are sinful and know it. Um, And people who walk closely with the Lord, as Paul has already pointed out in that other passage. So those are the hints. Then if we get a little bit more explicit, and this this point is perhaps a little more, whatever, sophisticated or something. Um, I apologize for that. But the judges are not just calling out sin, they are condemning the sinful. So Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So if I, just, if I say to someone, you know what, I think you're being rather lazy and I take this passage literally, then that would mean that God would come back to me and say, Ken, you know what? I think you're being rather lazy. Now you see that that doesn't make work. That doesn't make sense. It's not that God is going to accuse me of the thing that I accuse my brother of. It's that God is going to condemn me as I in my heart condemn my brother. So it's not about calling out sin at all. Judging is not about calling out sin. Judging is about condemning sinners. Judging is about rejecting brothers. Judging is about putting distance between yourself and people who have messy lives. Judgment is about division. A holy and a not holy. A holier than thou. Attitude coupled with a condemning heart and a critical spirit. The judges are not calling out sin. They are condemning the sinful. Judges reject people. Judges push people away. Judges pronounce condemnation. But the most clear 
indicator, for me anyways, of what Jesus means here, is actually in the grammar, and I confess that I didn't even see this until Saturday. But I was, and, and because of that, I didn't actually have peace in my heart about this message. There was always this little thing in the back of my head that was going, well, what if you've got this wrong? It's, it's about, this, this is such a heavy passage, and if you're not, if you've got this wrong, you're going to be in trouble. So what if you, and then I picked up a commentary that I don't normally pick up on Saturday morning, and I read, and the very first sentence said, this is, this is uh, May with a present imperative. Now, I apologize. I don't actually like to bring Greek into messages because it makes me look like I'm somebody and makes you think that I know something that you don't know, which is usually not the case. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, he's... I don't, know how to, I don't know how to do this without giving you a little Greek lesson. So in English, tense is about time. If I say was, that happened in the past. If I say is, it happened now. And if I say will be, it's going to happen in the future. And that's pretty much what tense is for in the English language. It's to tell whether you're talking about something in the past, present, or future. In Greek and in Hebrew, that's not what tense is for. They still call it tense. I don't know why. <laughs> But, but when you have the present tense, it's about the kind of action that is happening. So it's present tense imperative, which literally means, um, you could say, don't continuously judge. That would be a way of translating it. Another way of translating it would literally be stop judging. Um, the commentary that I'm talking about has a lovely sentence that I'm sure you're going to enjoy, so I put it down and I'm going to read it for you. Um, this author says, what Jesus has in mind here is the habit of censorious and carping criticism. The habit of censorious and carping criticism is what Jesus is condemning. Um, so you could say that another way of, and, and this is language that works for me, Jesus is condemning a critical spirit. And if you go through life with a critical spirit, an ungracious heart, then you will expect God to face you without grace when you face him. So if we restate the verse, it's saying that judgmental people will be condemned. Judgmental people will be condemned. How can that be? I end this message with this question. How can Jesus say that? Or how can he say earlier, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Paul says, for by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul trumpets the idea that my salvation, my relationship to God is not dependent upon my behavior, but it is dependent upon what Jesus has done so that I can stand before God righteous and holy, clothed in the righteousness of Christ in spite of the fact that I have no righteousness of my own. That's the gospel. How is it then that Jesus now says, oh, footnote, that's the gospel unless you're not forgiving. Or that's the gospel unless you're condemning. 
condemning and not forgiving our works. I remember in my journey learning to ask a different question, and I offer that to you now as something that I think particularly for those who are who are students of the scriptures and who love theology, I'm going to give you this. This is going to be the best gift of the morning. Uh, Stop asking the question, what is the essential behavior for salvation? And start asking the question, what change in nature happens to the saved? What is the essence What is the essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Ask that question first, and then the rest will fall into place really easily. What is the essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? The answer is easy in the scriptures. It's all over the place. The essential difference is that the Spirit of God lives in the heart of the Christian, and he doesn't live in the heart of the non-Christian. 1 John, the language of the Apostle John, chapter 3, a passage that is actually a hard one to read, and most of the time people don't like it. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I'm tempted to preach another passage, this this one, but I'm just going to say a couple of things. Notice he says, evident. By this it is evident who are the children of God. It isn't that you become a child of God by not sinning. It is that it is evident that you are a child of God when you lifestyle changes um, who are but that's not the part of this passage that I find the most enjoyable it's the word seed because as a farmer I know that if I put a seed in the ground and there's a little green shoot that's about that high that's the sh- that's the seed bearing fruit and then months later that seed is now this high and there's all kinds of grain on the plant and it's big and it's robust it's still that seed bearing fruit. So when we talk about this change that is wrought in the heart of a human being when Jesus comes and takes residence in our hearts, it's everything from a little tiny shoot to a big, robust plant. We don't judge each other for the size of the plant. And, that, and that's not saying anything about whether we are Christians or not. What, what we're looking for is the, the seed. And, and that's what John actually says, is that we are becoming like Jesus. That's what shows. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Same Same teaching. That the Spirit of God has taken up residence. John chapter 3, Jesus uses the same language. I won't read it for the sake of being fast. John chapter 3, verse 3, how can a man be, what must, what must I do to be saved? In essence is what Nicodemus says, you must be born again, Jesus says. And then in verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. So there's an essential change in the heart of a human being who has met Christ. And that essential change is going to grow. And it's going to look more and more like God. So God is a fundamentally forgiving and gracious God. If you think about the life of Christ, Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector and a, and a, and a crook. And everybody, all the Pharisees would say, scorn him. And Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house today. I've got to have lunch with you. The woman caught in adultery. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Mary, when she breaks the alabaster jar of perfume and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, and the Pharisees are gathered around going, does he not know what kind of a woman this is that's touching him? Consistently, we see our God as a gracious and forgiving God. And if we are inclined to be condemning, judgmental, critical in our spirits, we demonstrate that we are separate from our Father and different from our Lord Jesus Christ and lacking his spirit in our hearts. So it's a warning. Be in your heart towards others as Jesus was in his heart towards others. In the body of Christ, it should be a place where we are removing specks from each other's eyes, where we are calling out sin, but where when we call out sin, we come alongside as brothers who are also sinners, as sisters who know what weakness is, as we enter into the mess of each other's lives, speaking with clarity and pointedness and love, but lacking any kind of superiority or critical spirit or condemnation. The body of Christ is a place of healing, a place where we can be vulnerable, knowing that we will not be judged while we are helped. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. When you said in the Old Testament that you were a God abundant in compassion and loving kindness, we thought we knew what you meant. And when you sent your son to take on human flesh and walk and show us what that meant, it became beautiful in our eyes. And we want to be like Jesus. Your spirit has taken residence in our hearts and when we find ourselves looking with scorn at someone who we think hasn't got it together like we have, we pray that you would stop us instantaneously with the sense that we have left you and have abandoned our first love because we are acting in a way that is not like you. 
may we instead be like you, both in our healing of others and our helping and our coming alongside and our being with. May Pine Ridge Church be a place where this flourishes. And this is a community where we are not superficial nor judgmental. In Jesus' name, amen.